Welcome to the Green Majority, Canada's longest-running environmental news hour on CIUT 89.5 FM in Toronto. In CIUT 89.5 FM, Stefan. Yes. Is currently having its fall fundraiser. That is true. We're searching for $100,000 because this radio station needs to keep going because you need to be able to turn to that dial and hear those beautiful notions, those beautiful soundscapes, those rhythms, those tunes from CIUT 89.5 FM whenever you desire if you have the proper technology. I mean, you just have to be able to do it. Oh, yeah. There's no, there's no, there's no replacement. There's nothing to replace CIUT 89.5 FM with if it were to disappear. It is the only independent radio station on the FM dial. In Toronto. Yeah. There's nothing like it. And you can donate by going to CIUT.FM or by calling 416-946-7800, which for a while wasn't available due to COVID. So you want to call and talk to someone while you donate, you can do that. That number again is 416-946-7800, or you can always donate online at CIUT.FM. We're looking for around $1,000 an hour to reach that goal. Yes. Do the math. Fine, I'll do it. 10 people at $100. 50 people at $20. How far can you go? 20 people at $50. 1,000 people at $1. Oh, that's huge. Wow. Dig it. A thousand people who are listening right now donate one dollar, we would get to that mark. If twelve people call and donate eighty nine fifty, which gets you the membership and the t shirt, we will hit that goal. Do those t shirts come in XXL? They come in any size. Good, because that's what I'm looking for. I need to dress like big pun. And we're, of course, also broadcast on many community radio stations around the country other than CIUT. So thanks for that if you're listening or if you're playing us. And we can be found on podcasts. I'm David Franklin Erwin Hostetter. I'm Stefan Christian Erwin Hostetter. And Lauren Elizabeth Corlatour is taking a rest, just returned from COP26 in Glasgow. No clue how that went for her. We're going to hear about that next week. And we're going to do some news. Stefan's going to interview Matthew Klippenstein, who is chemical engineer, electrical electrical engineer. Is he is an is he an engineer of any kind at all? I mean, Stefan I'm thinks sure maybe he, he doesn't sure. even know. I'm pretty sure he's an engineer. <laughs> I'm like ninety percent. He likes to talk to us about technology stuff, and he has a certain level of expertise. Oh yes, exactly. He's an expert for sure, and he will be actually talking about a different story he shared with me about a complicated and weird happenstance between Hydro Quebec and. The state of Maine. Stefan's also going to interview... Who? Mark Angelo. Mark Angelo, who was the subject of a documentary at that was recently at, what, Toronto Water Dogs? At Resurge Film Festival. Resurge Film Festival. Yeah. And he personally won an award from the festival. Yes, the Water Dogs Water Warrior Award. He is a water warrior. He is a water warrior. What else is he? He is also a celebrated river conservationist, writer, speaker, teacher, and paddler. Paddler. Yeah. Stefan will be speaking with renowned paddler Mark Angelo. Exactly. We're going to continue throughout the hour asking listeners who are listening to this live on CIUT 89.5 FM to donate if you can. Difficult times, you know, but uh, CIUT needs to keep chugging just like everybody else does because it's free, wonderfully locally produced content that matters to people's actual lives and isn't just... uh, well, I don't know. I mean, I, the corporate radio can matter to people's lives, but this matters more viscerally to people's lives. It's closer to the heart. Yeah. It's closer to the throb. It is, after all, the sound of your city. Exactly. As you ride the airwaves. Independently. Ride those airwaves. You can say what you like, but real skill. I never luck, luck, luck. So, should I do some news? I got I got a primer off on COP first. True. COP26, they came to it. They found a document. They found the document they were searching for for the two weeks. Some might say they wrote it, uh, but we'll have a deeper dive into COP next week uh, when Lauren is able to join us. But just a few thoughts off the top about the final text, which you know was was come to an agreement in uh, on Saturday, last Saturday. Three quick thoughts. The first is that a lot of stories were eager to make India out to be the villain of this story for weakening the language on the coal phase-out in the final hours. 
but the weakening of the, that language is nothing compared to the failure of rich nations to appropriately pay for loss and damage. Many of the countries who have been lauded as climate champions, or in the United States' case, were arguing that they were quote-unquote back, were responsible for that failure. Specifically, the U.S., the European Union, Australia, and the U.K., who are actually the hosts of the summit, were singled out specifically as the biggest culprits in rejecting any further support for loss and damage. The second thing, in slightly better news, was that this is the first text to specifically mention fossil fuels. However, it couldn't even get itself to call for the scaling down of fossil fuels, but rather to end, quote, inefficient fossil fuel subsidies. So not even calling for the reduction of fossil fuels, just for subsidy reduction, and even those, just whatever inefficient means. Only the inefficient subsidies. And then third, in the end, what was proposed would leave us, as experts believe, at 2.4 degrees of warming, well beyond the two-degree threshold that Paris stated, and nearly an entire degree above the 1.5 goal, which is now considered, quote, hanging by a thread. These events are important for shared vision, but the real hard work of finding ways to reduce emissions will most often be within our countries and within our cities. We are reminded every day of the importance of action, not just for future generations, but increasingly for those of us alive today. The fact that the Canadian delegation to COP is returning within a week of the absolutely devastating rainfall in BC, which we'll be covering in half a second on the news section, should be a reminder to them and to all of us that the work doesn't stop when the cameras in the media stops paying attention. The work is now. Do you have any idea what an inefficient subsidy means? It's entirely a set of weasel words. There's no inefficient means whatever they want it to mean, which means that countries will do whatever they want. It's truly a way to just mean that they don't have to do it. Okay. So they came to an agreement. We'll talk a bit more about that agreement next week. Yeah. Because this week, it's the CIUT 89.5 FM fundraising drive. And we're hoping to get $100,000 this week to keep this radio station going. All through COVID-19, this thing has kept going. Mr. Ken Stower, everybody who works at CIUT, and all the volunteers have continued to put out all through these, these lockdowns, these madnesses. They've stepped up, and they've continued to produce their shows. You can turn on that 89.5 FM dial, and you can hear friendly voices, and you can hear rhythmically enchanting music. If you want to donate, you can donate at CIUT.FM or by calling 416-946-7800. And just in case you wanted a little more incentive, three of the prizes you can receive include uh, the grand prize is a trip to Iceland for two from Iceland naturally. Another prize is two one-year passes for all live programming at Supermarket. And three is a whole host of great movies in multiple different box sets from Taro PR. So $89.50 gets you a membership and also the ability to potentially win any of those prizes. But any donation counts. So any donation you can, CAUT.FM, we really appreciate you. On to the news. Yeah, Supermarket. The bar in Kensington, they have music shows. You can get into those free for a whole year, apparently. Yeah, it's a pretty sweet deal. No amount is too small. No amount. No amount is too small. Long stretches of fine clouds, known as atmospheric rivers, carry almost all the water vapor that gets exchanged between the north and south poles every year. This is something I learned just today. Atmospheric rivers, carrying water between the poles. And so they can be as large as they can, they can carry as much as, I think I read, five Mississippi rivers worth of water in one of these things. They're very long. Anyway, atmospheric rivers. Likely the largest such river ever to land in B.C. came down this week, killing an unknown number, stranding hundreds, and evacuating thousands as it brought torrential flooding and mudslides to the southern edge of the province. Greenhouse gas emissions are increasing the size of these atmospheric rivers, which could grow by as much as a quarter this century. Some places in B.C. have seen three times as much rain around this time of year than usual, although meteorologist Armel Castellan is quoted in Global News as saying that the burn scars and the thinned-out snow that were left in the mountains from the wildfire season contributed to the disastrous mudslides and flooding. In northern BC, 
the Gidimdan clan of the Wet'suwet'en Nation is enforcing its almost two-year-old eviction against Coastal GasLink, which is building its liquid natural gas pipeline through the unceded indigenous territory. The Wet'suwet'en Nation issued an enforcement notice at 5 a.m. on the 14th, giving the company eight hours to comply before they blocked the roads. Only a few workers left in time, and now the company is claiming that 500 workers are now stranded at two lodges because of the Wet'suwet'en blockade. Coastal GasLink and the Canadian courts that issued their permits and right-of-way are mired in contradictions of legality, because our laws have recognized that Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs never surrendered the territory, and that they have a right to traditional self-governance, but our governing structure has so far only recognized the authority of the colonially imposed banned councils. Wet'suwet'en leaders erected Coyote Camp around two months ago to continue the fight against the pipeline after dealing with COVID-19. The Unistoten Solidarity Brigade said, quote, Employees were given eight hours to peacefully evacuate the area before the main road into the Ludisbin territory of the Gidimdan clan was closed. The road has since been dis- disabled, stopping all work on Gidimdan territory. A railway blockade on Gitsan territory began in solidarity with the eviction enforcement action. The Gidimdan checkpoint stated, quote, We upheld our laws and issued a mandatory evacuation order for all pipeline workers trespassing on our territory. We are enforcing the eviction order from January 2020, where Wet'suwet'en hereditary chiefs, representing all clans of our nation, stood together and removed coastal gaslink from our lands. We will never abandon our children to live in a world with no clean water. We uphold our ancestral responsibilities. We continue to protect our yinta and invite all of our supporters to join us on the ground or to take action where you stand. There will be no pipelines on Wet'suwet'en territory. Last month, the Gitkatla Nation sued the province of BC for all the unauthorized mining claims that have been made on Banks Island. In what she called a complete disregard for their laws and governance, Chief Counselor Linda Innes said, quote, For too long, anyone with a computer and $34 has been able to acquire rights to minerals on the, on the traditional territory of the Gitkatla Nation. Amanda Follett-Hosgood quotes Innes for the Taiyi as citing the Yellow Giant gold mine, which polluted the island's water in 2015 and then went bankrupt and did not have to clean up their mess. The nation is telling the province to suspend all mineral claims granted between 2018 and 2020 until BC can fully implement its commitment to the Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples, also known as UNDRIP, which recognizes indigenous sovereignty. APTN reports that Mi'kmaq grandmothers and supporters held a feast for around 50 people this month to celebrate their victory over Alton Gas, which was planning on storing natural gas in underground salt caverns 12 kilometers from the Shubenacadie River and to dump leftover brine into the tidal river that flows into the Bay of Fundy. Doreen Bernard of the Sibignacadie First Nation said, quote, Our treaties never ceded land, Our treaties are peace and friendship treaties, and they were always meant for us to take care of this land and this water, for us to always be able to sustain ourselves as a people. And I think it's time for the rest of Canada to embrace those things. Clearcutting has meanwhile begun an important moose habitat in Mi'kmaq territory that was the site of protests and arrests last year as Mi'kmaq land defenders were trying to prevent logging in the area. Here in Ontario, the Grassy Narrows First Nation reports, quote, Ontario has violated their own mining act and granted eight drilling permits to three different companies on Grassy Narrows territory without consulting or even notifying the community. At the same time, Ontario is moving to plan new industrial logging on Grassy Narrows lands. This mining exploration and logging will further degrade Grassy Narrows land and would compound the harm that mercury, clear-cut logging, hydro dams, and residential schools have already done to Grassy Narrows' lives, lands, and way of life. A few months ago, the Grassy Narrows Nation finally reached a deal with Ottawa to fund a mercury treatment center, 50 years after their community was poisoned by mercury pollution from a paper mill. Chief Randy Fobister said, quote, 
We are on a healing path for our people, and the forest forest is our treatment center. We need our forest intact, but the government isn't working with us. They are working against us. They need to stop logging and mining so the land can heal. Good land will heal our people from all the damage the government has been pushing on us, like mercury and industry. That is reconciliation. Let us use our land to heal. For longtime listeners, you'll remember the interview we did uh, with researcher Tim Groves, who spoke a few months ago about the growing concern in Grassy Narrows with a number of sites that had been opened up uh, on their territory for mining exploration. And it looks like the Ontario government is moving forward in exactly the ways that they were concerned about. And it's on us settlers in Ontario to stand up for Grassy Narrows and hold our government to account in regards to a nation-to-nation relationship, which would put the right to allow mining, or not, directly in the hands of the Grassy Narrows community. And for those listening to the show live, there's a rally, march, and action in support of Wet'suwet'en today, November 19th at 11.30 a.m. People are meeting at 155 Wellington. And finally, one more huge congratulations to the Mi'kmaq land defenders in their defeat of the Alton gas plant. I think environmental allies could learn a lot from their decision to celebrate with a feast because I truly think that part of what we need to do to build towards a better future is begin to build a ritual of celebration for when these types of projects are defeated. We have monuments and days celebrating colonialism all over the place. We, why not come together around the protection of land, water, and the beating back of extraction pipelines? It's good to celebrate that kind of thing. But for, but for us on this side of it, right, not being First Nations, it can feel like we're celebrating having a lower standard of life because we associate our standard, quote-unquote, standard of living, right, all of our comforts, the energy we use, etc., with having this network of, of, of resources to constantly you know, use and pull from the earth. It's sort of counterintuitive, and it goes against that which we have been taught to celebrate, in a sense, right? Well, for sure, and Be- I think that's... Being protected from nature, being protected from the dangers of life is what we are taught to celebrate. But with this, if it, can, it can feel that we're like celebrating not having the infrastructure or not expanding the infrastructure that we like to keep us uh, comfortable. Well, I think that's exactly why it should be celebrated. That How else to change culture than to, to create new culture? Should we not be, cre- be creating culture that celebrates, you know, being closer to nature rather than demeaning over it? And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM on one or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country or maybe on the podcast event anywhere podcasts can be found, including greenmajority.ca. This is, of course, our fundraising episode for CIUT. We are here with Matthew Klippenstein, friend of the show and regional manager for Western Canada and Canadian Hydrogen Fuel Cell Association. A, welcome, Matthew, and B, I, I hear you have a good pitch for this show. So if you want to, or in supporting CIT, so if you want to take it away, please do. Sure. Uh, thanks, Stefan. Uh, thanks for having me. And uh, yeah, so so my pitch for uh, for the Green Majority goes a little bit like this. We'll start with the COP, which just finished. And a lot of people want stuff to happen during the two weeks of COP, understandable. But the real work happens in the other 50 weeks of the year when 
you do all the community building, you do all the advocacy, you do the direct action in cases, and then you create the momentum and the pressure and then the inevitability that governments will, during COP, make announcements so they're not completely embarrassed. And so the tie-in with the Green Majority here is that uh, Green Majority being on every week, uh, bringing in the voices that are not necessarily heard in traditional media, it's, you know, uh, dour stories aren't always the most popular, uh, and then helping to build the community, bring people from different aspects of the sustainability movement together. Uh, I think that's a very good compliment in terms of COP. So, uh, you know, at the risk of exaggerating very slightly to get more uh, out of the next COP, out of COP 27, 28, uh, by all means support Green Majority and similar programs, because we need the community uh, to have the action, to have the pressure uh, to get that progress. Uh, a, thank you for that. And if you want to donate and support us, you can do so at ciut.fm or call right now. People are waiting for your call at 416-946-7800. Any donation uh, is greatly appreciated. I'm trying to get to $1,000 uh, during this hour. So if you can, that'd be great. ciut.fm, you can donate. But to dive into our interview, Matthew, first, I must say, I don't know if it's us, but it seems every time we have you on the show, some other climate disaster has struck BC. I believe the last time we spoke, it was the heat dome. And now we're just days past, you know, this torrential and horrific rainfall. And so first question, how are you doing and how's your experience been? And are you all right? Sure. Uh, thanks. Yeah. So, um, we live in Metro Vancouver. Um, the nearby river, there was a flood warning, but we are okay. Uh, the folks around us are okay. So we're very uh, fortunate in that regard. Uh, of course, many people in the province are not okay. And uh, that's on account of the devastating effects of the floods caused by the atmosphere, like three successive atmospheric rivers. Uh, and in, in, as well, infrastructure that was designed for a you know, 1950 to 1980 weather systems world or, or climate uh, effects world. Uh, and so uh, the city of Hope, which is kind of the gateway to the rest of the province, the rest of Canada, I believe at the moment is cut off all four main highways, you know, going in and out. Uh, we have the city of Merritt, uh, which was uh, completely flooded out. Several other areas have lost power and suffered flooding. So um, uh, we are very fortunate to be okay, uh, but I'm very conscious that uh, many people in other parts of the province aren't. And uh, when we build back, uh, we're, we will definitely have to build back better uh, because that's just the world that uh, that we've brought ourselves into entering. Yeah, so maybe we can dive into that part for just a second because before we sort of hopped on air, we were talking about the types of traps that we can fall into in these types of things. I, I would say it's somewhat similar even to here in Toronto, the TTC has started cutting back ridership uh, or cutting back um, services because of the reduced ridership to COVID, but that can create a, a spiral of that then fewer people use it and there's fewer, and then they cut back more, fewer people use it and it becomes a spiral of, 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 of until there's no more transit. And in the same way, that you had this very important question of like, when we build back these highways, that some of these are on floodplains, what do we do? Yeah, so um, some of the highways that have been flooded, we used them earlier in the summer, uh, and they are built on floodplains. They were built uh, probably a few feet above the rest of the floodplain, above the farms. Uh, they will definitely have to be built back. You know, like in England, I think they have these high roads or high streets where, you know, back in the medieval era, they they'd make the highways elevated so that the king or the, the soldiers wouldn't get wet when they were marching from some, some one, one place to another. We will have to build back uh, properly, robustly, and that will cost a lot more money. And that means people who are in the, you know, the PMC professional managerial class, uh, you know, folks like me, um, you know, it's our responsibility to open our wallets because frankly, post COVID, um, you're not exactly gonna be getting more money out of the bottom. 90, 95%. It's just unreasonable to ask. Yeah, exactly. And this question, I think, of do we spend more and more and more on responsive adaptation measures? 
you know, is a question easier answered here, but, you know, that's one of the biggest things that came out of, out of COP as well, you know, is the fact that the, those of us in the rich nations have decided not to allow for people to build back in, in the poor nations from loss and damage in a way that can actually do it. So it's sort of what you've highlighted on a individual scale exists too on a, on a more global scale. Uh, but perhaps we can pivot to the to another part of the conversation because you sent a very interesting article uh, to us about two weeks ago about something I'd, I hadn't heard of any of this. I will be admit I will admit it was about Hydro Quebec trying to build a uh, transmission lines. That's what I'm looking for uh, to Massachusetts, but then it got all shut down in Maine. So can you give us a summary of, of what happened? Uh, sure. So now I'm not the closest to this topic, but uh, as I've been able to research it, Hydro-Quebec uh, has a, a lot of hydro, low emissions electricity. Massachusetts wants to reduce its reliance on fossil fuel generators. Obviously, makes sense. Uh, to do that, though, they have to build a transmission line through Maine. And um, people in Maine devoted in a referendum to not allow the transmission to be built along a particular corridor in uh, one of their forests. Now, complicating the situation is that the owner of the transmission line uh, is going to be a European company. Hydro-Quebec is a, is a foreign, it's a Canadian company. And there was an obscene amount of lobbying done by the incumbent uh, power utility, which has a, a fair amount of uh, fossil fuel-based power generation. So what we see here is a case of, I'm not even sure if it's nimbyism, but it's a case of protests against an absolutely low emissions carbon project, which would immediately and directly displace fossil fuels. Um, something that uh, people in the energy transition need to be aware of, because even in Canada, we're going to want to build a lot more transmission to be able to bring a lot more variable renewables onto the grid and you know, help Alberta and Saskatchewan particularly ease off the fossil fuels. Uh, and a lot of that is going to go through areas of folks who may not feel that they have an economic advantage from it. And uh, that's, that's something to gird, our, uh, gird ourselves for because uh, it's definitely going to come to a head at various places in Canada as well. Yeah, I, I thought it was interesting there for me, the sort of alliance between more like environmental groups that sort of have the nimbiest edge and and then more people just sort of against clean power whatsoever that sort of came together to sort of fight this off. Because it's it because what's interesting about this for me is that this large scale project is exactly the kind of thing that is needed for this, you know, for the huge revolution that's required, right? Like we have to basically rebuild almost our entire power grid. And yet it also sort of feels very similar in, in, in many ways to the types of projects that environmentalists have been fighting, you know, for the last 20 years, you know, huge energy projects run by giant corporations plowing through places. Mm -hmm. And, and so I, there is something there for me about the tension between the real need for this work and the still kind of bulldozing your way through these communities that you have to, to build these transmission lines. And there's something there which I'm interested in. And I, I, I feel like it's something that we've got to figure out how to really do, do better communicating, I think. Right. Yeah. So like in the US, Tucker Carlson, who's like Fox News' number one um, uh, TV host, um, kind of a monstrous fellow, judging by his politics. Well, sorry, his politics are monstrous. I'm sure that I don't want to call any human being monstrous on their own. Uh, so he was he was razzing or he was uh, criticizing the project. Uh, I listened to Kyle Kalinsky, who's uh, sort of left from the left left wing voice, and he was also um, criticizing the project again on the basis that foreign company, you know, uh, railroading this local community through this project. And uh, my hope is that. Um, we can get to the point where as valuable as this temperate uh, forest may be in Maine, that the ultimate win of directly taking fossil fuels out of, uh, out of production, um, out of power generation, uh, can win out. 
Um, I realize this is nimbyism and, uh, you know, I don't know, within a city, it's hard to be like, well, yes, I accept this project. I'm, I'm totally in favor of densified housing. Like if there's a project nearby, I'll totally do that. It's the right thing to do. Uh, but um, if you live in a comfortable place, then, you know, what's the, what's the equivalent? If you're not in a rural area, well, open your wallets. It's like, you know, this, this work has to be done. And uh, if you're in the, uh, in the fortunate position, you know, it's, it's never all hard work. If you're in the fortunate position, that you can contribute more, well, I kind of think the planet is worth it. Yeah, exactly. And these big companies have to figure out, you know, ways to really talk about this and and to make these conversations work on the ground in these local ways because mm-hmm. we it's something we desperately need. You know, a, a former uh, a, Alex Tavasoli, who's been on the show a few times, has, at one point sent me this idea of you can't go home again, which basically was the idea that like so much of what we need to do to get to the green future we need are things that people don't like. Like it's an insane, it's a, it's a huge amount of construction. It's a huge amount of new building. It's a huge amount of transmission lines. There's a, all of these things that people will sort of feel viscerally like it's an encroachment or maybe somehow anti-environmentally friendly. But are necessary for this transition. And so I guess as a ways of a last question, if there's something that you would want to see people sort of take away from this story or anything you've experienced uh, this week, what would it be? Uh, okay, so um, this is gonna be a bit uh, counterintuitive, but just going back to the item on denser housing, uh, I saw a tweet, I think, by Brent Todarian, uh, sort of used to be city of Vancouver's planner, uh, who said that if you do any polls, something like 70 plus percent of people in any given city will support more dense housing because it creates more spots. You don't need cars to clog up all this, all these uh, roadway space, this valuable place that stores could be and people could cycle. Um, but of course, every time you propose higher density housing, uh, uh, you know, just like uh, mid rises or low rises with uh, with stores in the bottom. Everyone in the neighborhood's like, "Oh, my neighborhood's too pretty," or or some other crazy thing like that. And he suggested, "Well, just use the poll and say, well, look, you know, you guys can have all the public offices you want, but in every single other neighborhood, you're okay with it. It's time to take your hit." So, um, so yeah, I guess I would uh, I would offer that in that. Um, I realize it's easy for me to criticize people in Maine. You know, maybe there's some emotional attachment to the forest, but uh, I'm well aware that in my time, I'm going to need to do. I need need to say yes to things uh, in the short term. Uh, saying yes to have better infrastructure, I'm in a lucky enough position to do that. I have to do that, and hopefully, I'll have a chance to stand up for you know, denser housing or you know more public transit or some other thing, which um, which proves that I'm not just you know just another gas bag <laughs> yeah yeah we we're all it's, it's i guess it's the it's the glass uh it's the it, we just got to make sure we're not living in glass houses i guess is the right. is the key right. there um well uh, thank you so much uh, matthew klippenstein the regional manager the regional manager of western canada and the canadian hydrogen fuel cell association and really just a friend of the show who comes on and, and chats about a whole bunch of stuff and provides his expertise really appreciate you having you on matthew thanks so much you're welcome, and CIUT supporter as well. Don't forget that. Uh, yeah, that's the most, and for this show, that's the most important point. It's a good point. Uh, we're going to go to a music break in just a second. And during that music break, you can use that time to call 416-946-7800 or just go online to CIUT.FM. Any donation above $25 gets you a tax receipt, but any amount is also appreciated. Thank you so much, uh, Matthew, and to everyone who's already donated. And if you can, Please do. Music, take it away.
And welcome back to The Green Majority here on CIUT 89.5 FM, or perhaps on one of our greatly appreciated radio syndicates across the country, or perhaps you found us on the podcast, which you found at greenmajority.ca. However you've joined us, thank you so much. This is, of course, our fundraising episode for CIUT. We are trying to get to 100,000. We are the only independent radio on the FM dial here in the city of Toronto. So if you can't support, you can go to CIUT.FM and help us out. It'd be greatly appreciated. And one of the reasons why you might want to help us out is because we always have great interviews on this show. Today's is with Mark Angelo, an internationally celebrated river conservationist, a writer, a speaker, a teacher, and a paddler, and also the winner of the Water Docs Water Warrior Award, whose efforts have been documented in a feature-length documentary film called The Last Paddle, 1,000 Rivers, One Life. That is currently available until the end of November through the Research Film Festival. But thank you so much for being here, Mark. Great to be with you, Stanton. Thank you for having me. So we could probably talk the whole hour chatting about your life and your accomplishments, but maybe as a way of introduction, you could let us know what the documentary covers. Well, the film Last Battle, it was directed and produced by Roger Williams. I've done some work with him before, and yeah, he's a great director. The film itself, it does take viewers on an around-the-world journey. It's very much a global film. It is also biographical in nature to a, a fair degree. But, you know, a key message, a key part of the film is that it makes an urgent plea to better protect the world's great river environments. And that's a very important message. Our rivers are the arteries of our planet. They're lifelines in the truest sense, but they're also under immense pressure. So that's certainly one of the key takeaways of the film. Right. And you mentioned it was autobiographical in nature. What's your story that's weaved through it? Well, the film did allow me to go back to some rivers and places that played a huge role in, in my past. For instance, in my youth, I spent a lot of time beside damaged waterways. I grew up by the Los Angeles River. I lived along the last semi-natural stretch of the entire river, but just downstream from where I lived, the river had been totally encased in concrete and literally became a dead river. That had a big influence on me. Later in life, and later as a teenager, I lived beside the Milltown Dam going to university, which was in the state of Montana. It was one of the most toxic sites in the United States. And those experiences had a big impact on me and certainly sparked a great interest, not only in protecting rivers, but also in restoring rivers that have been damaged in past. And river restoration and ecological restoration back in the early 70s was very much a new field. But in addition to that, the film allowed me to go back to other places that were important to me. Uh, we spent quite a bit of time in Australia. That would be important to my mother because my mother is from there. And, you know, Australia for a long time has been on the leading edge of the battle against climate change. And, and in that country, managing water and rivers, it, it's an immense challenge the way things are. So we tried to, to document that in the film and reflect that in the film. We visited many other areas, once again, that were a big part of my past. We went to the, the Thames in England that my wife and I paddled almost five decades ago when it was pretty much a dead river. And, and yet, in many ways, it sprung back to life. So that's a sign of hope that, you know, we can turn things around as bad as they may look at times. And, you know, we went to many other rivers, too. India is a country I dearly love. We spent time in the Ganges, a, a river that's so venerated and yet so polluted. And to me, that's such a contradiction. And lastly, you know, as I said, it is a global film. We went to rivers ranging from the Zambezi, which is a river close to my heart, to Canada and British Columbia's very own Fraser River. Once again, a, a river I love, uh, but rivers that really highlight the fact that we still have to do much, much more to adequately protect the world's great river environments. Uh, so once again, that's a, a key message throughout the film. So maybe we can dive into that for even just half a second. What do you call for when you talk about river restoration? What does protecting rivers, you know, look like? I believe there's kind of two sides to that question. First of all, I believe very strongly that we have to do everything we can to protect those rivers that remain in good shape. We have to be proactive. A big problem in past is we were never proactive trying to adequately protect rivers up front. We always started to deal with them after the fact, after they had been hard hit or polluted. That was more often the case than not. But over and above that, I'm also a believer in doing everything we can to try and restore those rivers that have been damaged in past. And rivers face an array of threats, you know, things like pollution and urbanization, industrial development, 
of the excessive extraction of water, the building of dams, and certainly climate change. So trying to deal with those and doing everything we can to turn things around, to restore rivers that have been damaged in shape, damaged uh, uh, in past. And actually, the film Last Paddle starts on a very hopeful note, and then it looks uh, at two local streams that were severely damaged 40 and 50 years ago. Uh, and the film documents successful efforts to literally turn things around and bring those rivers back to health. So I'm a real believer in both aspects, protecting rivers up front, being proactive, but also tackling those rivers that have been damaged in past and doing everything we can to clean them up. Awesome. And so maybe we can go back to the film for a second to just, if there's a particular scene that sticks out to you or a particular moment during the filming that you remember that speaks to you. You know, there's several, but certainly one uh, in India, we spent a lot of time on the Yamuna River and the Ganges, rivers once again that are venerated by millions and millions and millions of people in that country, but rivers that have become so polluted. And to be on a river like the Yamuna as as an example, when the river is literally filled with toxic foam and people are swimming in it and they're taking their pole because that's a big part of their culture. But once again, by doing that, there's some very major health consequences that come out of that. And, and to see a river that with, was so visibly and so obviously severely polluted and to see people drawing water from it, to see people swimming in it, that's certainly a moment that stuck with me. So as a lifelong uh, lover and protector of water, what would you say the biggest thing you would want to convey to the general public is about the situation we find ourselves in? Well, I do believe that rivers face an array of threats. As I said before, they're the arteries of the planet. They're lifelines in the truest sense. But they also face, you know, severe pressures around the world. So my hope is that people will be encouraged to get involved. There's so much we can do as, as individuals. We can all work as an example to, to conserve water. You know, we can all be careful about what we put down storm drains to ensure we're not dumping toxic materials into storm drains because ultimately... That will find its way into rivers and, and then oceans. We could do even simple things like wherever possible, trying to wash our clothes in, in cold or warm water as opposed to hot water, simply because that lessens the amount of uh, microfibers and microplastics that ultimately find their way then into rivers and, and oceans. We can support streamkeeper groups. You know, I have to say, while there's a lot of challenges and threats out there, one of the great strides forward that we've made in the last 40 or 50 years relates to the number of streamkeeper and riverkeeper groups that are out there. When I started 50 years ago, being a river advocate and a river conservationist was very much a lonely endeavor. You know, there weren't a, a, a lot out there that, that were doing that kind of work. And, and yet today, as an example, I live in Greater Vancouver. Almost every stream now in Greater Vancouver has a local streamkeeper group attached to it. And these are groups that keep an eye out on the stream. They, they try to report or highlight problems or spills that, that may occur. They speak up for the local stream or river. They, they deal with media. They approach politicians. That's been wonderful to see, the fact that there are so many stream keepers and river keepers out there. That's a sign of hope. And my hope at the individual level, people can either get involved with those groups or they can try to support them. But also, in, in addition to all of the things I've mentioned, we can also try to raise issues around water and river conservation with politicians whenever we get a chance. That might be writing a letter during an election campaign, or it might be approaching a politician at some point. It might be speaking at a local council meeting, but that's something we can all try to do a little more of as well. That's awesome. And so you've spoken a fair amount so far about hope, which is much needed, I think, in these times. And one of the questions I've been sort of putting forward towards, honestly, everyone who's come on the show for the last little bit has been around this idea of eco-anxiety. You know, this idea of the mental health impacts of fearing for your world. And clearly, it sounds like some of your early experiences led you to feeling that fear for these rivers and that sort of inspired you to take action. You've been doing this now for obviously over 50 years. And so I'm curious if there are so many young people out there just starting out, how how have you coped? How What have you learned as a way to keep yourself active and in this field, despite the sad and depressing nature of so often of the state of these rivers or of the world itself? You know, I totally understand eco-anxiety and how people might feel in that regard. I'm particularly concerned about young people who tend to 
to think that, and I totally understand it. But at the same time, I'm a real believer in the fact that, that we can't give up. We can't turn things around if there are enough voices out there pushing for it. You know, I, I've seen some amazing examples of rivers that were lifeless and, and toxic 40 and 50 years ago. And we, in fact, have turned them around. Maybe not enough, but there's enough good examples out there that, that we can make progress. We can turn things around if there's a will, if a plan is put in place, if we stick to it, if we adhere to it. And the fact that there are so many young people out there, I spend a lot of time with young people, the fact there are so many young people out there that are interested in the environment, interested in water, interested in rivers, they're getting involved in environmental issues, that gives me great hope. And, and reason for, for optimism that it's not too late. We, we can turn this ship around if, in fact, the, the will is there. And so you, you mentioned a little bit there about your interest and, and connection to, to youth and trying to speak to, to young people. And, and that segues very well into the next question, which is about your upcoming book. So A, can you tell us a little about this book? And B, why are you so interested in, in, in conveying and, and talking to, to young people? Well, maybe I'll take that question and I'll deal with the second part first. Uh, I'm such a believer in reaching out to children. I've done a lot of work in past. I've written a lot aimed at adults, aimed at university students, but I'm also a real believer in, in reaching out to children. You know, I'm part of that too. I'm, I'm a grandfather. I spend a lot of time with, with my own grandkids, but all children, I, I look at them literally as the environmental citizens of our future. So we spend a lot of time with children, with scout groups, with school groups, with community groups. We do tours of local creeks. We do fish releases. We do cleanups. But also over the pandemic, I was inspired uh, to write my, my first illustrated children's book, once again, with inspiration from my grandkids. But it's a, a project that I'm quite excited about. The name of the book is Little Creek That Could, the story of a stream that came back to life. And basically the book, tell, it's an illustrated children's book, and it tells the story, the true story of a five-decade-long effort to restore a local stream. And the story speaks to the fact that nature can heal itself if only we give it a chance. I think that's a really important and positive message for kids. And while the book focuses on a single stream, it, it's broader message about healing the environment, about restoring the environment. I think that's universal in nature and hopefully will appeal to anyone regardless of where they might live. I mean, people can get more information on the book through the website, The Little Creek That Could, all one word, thelittlecreekthatcould.com. There is uh, information on the book. There's a film trailer on the book. There's also retail links. It's available through Chapters, Indigo, and Barnes and & Noble, and Amazon. But it's, it's a book that I think has an inspirational and hopeful message. And once again, pertaining to restoring the environment, that it can be done. And it's important that we do it. So it's a project I'm very excited about. Awesome. To go back to the movie, uh, the documentary, uh, two-part question. A, if you can talk a little bit more about sort of your, your experience doing it and what you hope people take out of it. And then B, how can people actually you know, watch the documentary? Well, the documentary will be available through the film festival for another period of time. But after that, later in the year, it will be streamed. People can always go into lastpanel.com uh, for more information. Uh, but it's a film that I was thrilled to have a chance to work on. It was also a follow-up to a film we did uh, a few years back called River Blue that actually, once again, was a global river conservation, river and environmental documentary, and it looked at the environmental impacts of the fashion industry. That, too, was a really fascinating film to make. And over the years, you know, I can look at that film, and I do believe, along with other factors, that film has had an influence. We're hearing a lot... Fashion is still a huge problem, but we're hearing a lot more about sustainable fashion today than was the case five, six, seven years ago. So anyway, the film is will be out there, and I hope people get a chance to see it. And once again, uh, I hope, having seen it, that people will, will look at our rivers and recognize that on one hand, we're very lucky to live in a country like Canada, which in my view, has perhaps the world's greatest river heritage. But that said, our rivers are not immune to impacts here in our own country. They face a lot of pressures, just like they do everywhere around the world. So my hope is and the film will not only create awareness, but it'll encourage people to perhaps get more engaged with their own local waterways. 
it's our tradition here to give a last word to our guests. And so I'll throw to you Ed, for a last word that you can sort of throw out there. But before I do, I just want to thank you, Mark Angelo, an international celebrated a river conservationist, a writer, a speaker, a teacher, a paddler, and the winner of the Water Docs Water Warrior Award and whose efforts can be documented in this feature-length documentary called Last Paddle, 1,000 Rivers and One Life, which is currently available until the end of November through the Research Film Festival. And if I can make one other last pitch to please, if you have a few more minutes to donate to CIUT.FM for our fundraiser, trying to get to $100,000. The goal is that each show, it tries to get to $1,000. If you get $1,000 for every show, we'll hit that mark. And so any amount is greatly appreciated. And you can go to CIUT.FM to donate. And thank you so much for that. But Mark, please take it away. Well, thank you, Stephen. I hope that people have gained a greater appreciation, and many already do, I'm sure. But I'm hoping that people who have seen the, seen the film or people who have listened to our interview gain a greater appreciation of the fact that rivers and water are the foundation of of all life. And so I think we have to do everything we can, as you said before, to protect all healthy waterways while trying to restore those that have been damaged in past. I just think that's that's so important from an environmental perspective, a public health perspective, but also uh, just simply from the point of view that rivers are amazing features and healthy creeks and streams make our communities better and safer places to live. And if people take just that message away, that would be wonderful.